called this uh, message today, Amazing Grace. And I know confidently uh, that the Lord has given me this word and I'm excited to get into it. So we're going to be in the book of Luke, verse uh, chapter 2. And it is Christmas time and it is one of my favorite times of year. And so um, I'm excited that I get to preach during this time out of Luke chapter 2. And we're going to... We're going to read verses 36 and 38. I believe it's going to be on the screen here in a minute. But I want to provide a little context because our pastor tells us that a text without context is a pretext. So I want to provide a little context for this chapter. We see that Christ is born of the Virgin Mary. We see that angels have come and they've showed up in the middle of the night to shepherds who are in the field and announce the birth of Jesus. Jesus is circumcised, and then Mary and Joseph bring him to the temple. They return him to the Lord, just like we do at child dedication. And then the Bible says that there was a man named Simeon, and the Bible says he was a just and a devout man who was waiting to see God's promise. And then we read in verse 36 and 38 of Anna. The Bible says, now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. You can take a seat as you uh, point your hands this way to pray for me. I want to pray for myself. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity this morning. I thank you for your word which brings us such comfort. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are acceptable to you, my strength and my redeemer. And I thank you, Lord, for every soul that's in this room tonight. I thank you for the assignment that you've given me. And I pray that their hearts are open. God, I thank you for the work that I know you're gonna do in lives this morning. We give you honor and praise in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about Anna this morning, or at least we're going to start there in Luke chapter 2. And we know a few things about Anna that the Word tells us, but it's really only two verses. We know that depending on how you interpret that text, Anna was maybe 105 years old, but we know that she was at least 84 years old. And if you're like the Bible, you just say she was of a great age. Sometimes the Bible is just really cutthroat like that. I never want to be called of great age. But she was a widow after just seven years of marriage. And I don't think anyone can really understand the grief and the weight and the pain of widowhood until you've experienced it. And I pray that I never experienced that and no one else in this room does. But I understood that in the time of the, that the Bible was written and in this time frame, widowhood looked a little bit different than it did today. And I was reading in Harper's Bible Dictionary, I believe that quote uh, will be on the screen. I want to read this. A widow was a woman whose husband has died. I think we all can recognize that. But it continues to say the status of the widow in ancient Israelite society was precarious, meaning it wasn't secure. 
Having no inheritance rights and often in want of life's necessities, she was exposed to harsh treatment and exploitation. Widowhood was perceived by some to be a disgrace. And so I I hope that you can put yourself in those shoes for a minute And some of you who have walked that path, you don't have to put, you're living that path. And we're we're mourning with you this this morning, but imagine Anna, she's a widow and she's experiencing this grief, but not only is she a widow, she is living in a dark age in Israel's history. There has been 400 years of silence. The nation is full of doubt and full of disbelief. And I wonder if, people started to, to, to question, is the Messiah really coming? Is he really gonna show up on the scene? Because we've just gone from bondage to bondage to captivity to captivity. And here's Anna, who's not only experiencing a personal hard time in her life, but she's living in a nation that is in captivity and is in just disbelief and doubt, looking for a Messiah who's gonna redeem them from the Romans. But verse 37 says, this woman, Anna, did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And our first kingdom dynamic this morning that I hope that you will apply to your heart is that you have to be careful where you take your pain. You know, uh, Jesus, uh, in John, John chapter 6, he's talking to the disciples, and many of them, the Bible says, are turning away. And in verse 67, he looks at the 12, and he said, are you also gonna go away? But Peter answered him and said, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I think Anna understood what Peter understood is that I'm gonna have pain, but where I take my pain is what's gonna make the difference. Because your pain will try to pull you out of place. And so your pain in his presence becomes process. You know, we say it almost every Sunday morning, we talk about our four values as the Potter's House, and we say his presence is our purpose because where you take your pain matters. But if you take your pain to his presence, it'll become purpose. You'll find purpose in it. Anna took her pain to the temple. She positioned herself in the temple. And the second kingdom dynamic we learn from Anna is that you can't let your sadness affect your sight. Sadness will try to steal your anticipation. David said in Psalm 27, he said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And Michael preaches it often, that mourning can stop your movement. In Joshua, God spoke to Joshua and he said, Moses is dead, now therefore arise. And hear my heart this morning, I'm not saying if you've lost a spouse, if you're mourning something that it's insignificant or that it doesn't matter to God. In fact, the word says that God bottles your tears. He cares that much that he bottles your tears. I, I love my babies, but I don't bottle their tears. But we have a father who bottles our tears. But I'm saying that God allowed a time for mourning in Israel, but then he said, get up, because I still have a plan and I have a purpose. And so I don't know what you're mourning this morning. I'm sure I don't have to point it out in your life. It might be the loss of a spouse like Anna. 
It might be another family member. During this time of year, we look at our tables, and I think those empty places just stand out more at this time of year than at others because we remember the wonderful times we had at Christmas and at Thanksgiving with those. Maybe you're mourning a career. Maybe you're mourning the, the loss uh, of a child or a child that's run away from the Lord, a spiritual loss. Or maybe you're, lo- you're mourning a loss physically due to illness or an injury. Or maybe you're mourning a loss of finances or losing your home. In uh, 2012, Michael and I got married and the Lord called us to Lebanon, Ohio. It was always funny, we would sometimes just tell people God called us to Lebanon and we would leave off the Ohio part, not intentionally, and people thought, oh, you're gonna be missionaries. I know, it's in Ohio, it's, it's near Cincinnati. Um, but the Lord called us there. And during that time, I, I wrote a dream, uh, a, like just a career dream that I had to the Lord, and I, I put it in my prayer time. And um, I imagined, oh, this is gonna be, you know, maybe when I'm 40, maybe when I'm at 50, this is, this is like my dream job. And it's good for us to dream, but it's good for us to dream in the hands of the Lord and and let us delight ourselves in him where he can be pliable with our dreams. And through a series of miracles that I'm not gonna get into uh, because I I teased Michael that I wouldn't preach as long as him, but um, through those series of miracles, God gave me very close to my dream job. I was 20 years old. And I remember that because they, uh, you know, the process to like you're filling out your w-2 and all those things they had to copy my license and i gave them my license and it was still vertical and it hadn't turned yet because i hadn't turned 21 and i think my boss regretted hiring me because i don't he didn't pay attention to my age or something but he just thought oh my goodness you're too young for this job but it was the Lord had given me that job and it was, uh, to, uh, I was in pastry instructor at a culinary institute in Cincinnati and just, I loved the job. I mean, I loved the job. It was more money, less work, but I the work that it was and um, I just loved it. Michael thinks that I loved it because I got to boss people around all day, <laughs> which is probably partially true, but um, I love the job. And it was four months after I got that job and I thought, man, I can work my way up. And um, I was adjunct so I could work my way up to full time. And I was like, wow, God, look at you doing immeasurably more. I said this just a little bit ago and I never thought in my wildest dreams, I mean, I was praising the Lord. And then he called us to move back to Columbus. And I, like a good old Christian toddler, threw a fit (laughs) and kicking and screaming. I knew that the Lord had called us to Columbus, but that didn't mean I wanted to go. And I threw a fit and I knew that the Lord was not calling me to drive to Cincinnati every day. And And I just heard the Lord, like Abraham, say, will you give me your Isaac? I gave it to you and you know I gave it to you. Will you give it to me back? will you surrender it? And I'm not making light of losing a career compared to losing a spouse. I realize there's a difference. But in that moment, I mourned what my dream was. And in 2015, I actually had an an interview with my alma mater to be a recruit. And that was like, oh, this is my dream back. 
like, okay, God, I gave it to you and you're giving it back. I had a great interview. I felt so confident that God was opening the doors and I did not get that job. (laughs) And once again, I mourned what I had just always dreamed and what I always wanted. But you know, when you mourn, there's purpose in your tears. And I'm not gonna get into a science lesson today, but I encourage you to study tears. And there's three types of tears, and I'm not gonna talk about all of them. They all have the same chemical composition. But there's one type, your emotional tears, and these are the tears that gush when you're having strong emotion. I would say that's how I felt when the Lord called me to move when I had just gotten my dream job. There was strong emotion. And that could even be joy, it could be anger, it could be sadness, but these tears, these tears, these emotional tears, have the same chemical makeup as all the other, but they have more protein, more stress hormones, and more natural painkillers, which the science world calls endorphins, than your other kinds of tears. Why? Because God is the creator of the planet, and he created you, and your tears were meant to serve a purpose. They were meant for healing. Those endorphins, those painkillers, when you're expressing grief and you're experiencing that, the Lord has designed our bodies so that we do not stay in sadness, that we do not get stuck in sadness. Why is it important that we don't get in sad, stuck in sadness? I think anybody has, probably everyone has had a moment where you're like, I just want to cry. I want to be left alone. I want to grieve what I'm mad about. And then I'll get up later and I'll do what the Lord told me. But why do we need to wipe our eyes? It's because Isaiah 43 and 19, behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? God needed someone like Anna who could see his promise in seed form. But if Anna hadn't got up, if she hadn't wiped her eyes, she maybe would have missed the promise because the rest of Israel was looking for a promise of a king. They were looking for someone to ride in and save the day, but Anna recognized the promise in seed form. And right before that verse I just read, will you not see it? There's this warning, don't remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. And we can get caught up looking at our situation, but we don't walk by our sight, we walk by faith. We walk by faith. The third kingdom dynamic we learn from Anna is that fasting and prayer protects our anticipation. In verse 37, Luke chapter two, It says that Anna didn't depart from the temple, but Anna served God with fastings and prayers night and day. You see, there's nothing more powerful than hunger. (laughs) There's nothing more powerful than hunger. I asked my sister permission to share about my little niece, Araya this morning. She's a wild thing, and um, Hadassah had told me, man, this kid wants hot chocolate every single morning for breakfast, and she's mean if she doesn't get it. And I can't remember what the situation was, but I went over there really early one morning and um, had forgotten she said that, and Araya had just woken up, 
And I was in her kitchen, and sure enough, Araya is hot chocolate, hot chocolate, hot chocolate, hot chocolate. I mean, nonstop, she needs her hot chocolate first thing when she wakes up. And so Hadassah goes, yeah, I'm gonna get you your hot chocolate. Puts her in the high chair, and that kid is thrashing back and forth. I mean, she can physically see Hadassah is making her hot chocolate, but she needs it right now. And is just throwing herself all over that high chair. And I just looked in wonder and thought, hunger is powerful. <laughs> hunger makes you look crazy. Hunger will make you do crazy things. And that's why we find Anna, she's fasting and she's praying. Why? Because she's protecting her anticipation. She's expectant of the Lord. And you know, corporately as a body, we've done a, we've done a fast uh, I think every single year at the beginning of the year, we've done a 21-day fast, a 40-day fast. A couple years ago, we did a 100-day fast. And this year, Michael, coming into 2024, Michael and I felt like the Lord wanted us to do a three-day fast for the first three days of every single month because we're gonna set our month with anticipation and give a tithe of our month back to the Lord, that it's his and that we're expectant of what he's gonna do. You know, we looked at Psalm 27 where David said, I would have lost heart had I not seen. Psalm 27 um, and 14 says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That word wait is the Hebrew word kavah. And it means to wait, to look for, to hope, to be expectant. Anna didn't just sit down because she knew she was hopeful. She was expectant that redemption was coming. She did not get sit down and get comfortable and think, oh, my days are over. The prime of my life is over. I'm going to get comfortable in the temple. No, she was in the temple fasting and praying. In Mark 9, we read, a, we read a story where Jesus is with his disciples and they're not able to cast out a demon from a little boy. And they come to Jesus and they say, you know, why, why, why couldn't this come out? And his response in Mark 9 and 29 is, this kind can only come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. You see, Anna's pain took her to the school of prayer and fasting. And we can try to busy ourselves in the temple. We can try to busy ourselves when we experience grief. But Anna went to the temple and she prayed and she fasted because there are no shortcuts in the kingdom. If you want to be mighty in the kingdom, you don't get to skip prayer and fasting. That is the fuel. That is what makes you expectant. That is what gives you hope to follow the Lord. Our fourth kingdom dynamic that we learned from Anna is that Anna recognized what was after her is what she was assigned to. You know, when we got our son Tobin, we recognized very quickly um, and, and, and learned more and more as time went on, but we recognized very quickly what the assignment from the pits of hell for his life was. We recognized very quickly that there was a roaring lion seeking who he could devour in our little son's life. And so you know what we did? We named him Tobin, which means God is good. 
because his life said God is not good. His life, his story said, you know, a mother should never, uh, a child should never have to be pulled from a mother. And his life said, this isn't good, but we named him God is good. And not only did we just name him God is good, we named him Tobin Michael, which means God is good, who is like God. So the enemy can just take his plan and he can go back to hell because we named our son Tobin Michael. And, and his plan of destruction could go straight back where it came from. And that's what, if you read this definition of a widow that we read before, it says a woman whose husband has died, we understand that, the status of a widow in ancient Israelite society was precarious, it was not secure. Having no inheritance rights and often in want of life's necessities, she was exposed to harsh treatment and exploitation. Mm. Widowhood was perceived by some to be a disgrace. You know what Anna means? Anna means grace. <laughs> See, the enemy tried to disgrace her, but she recognized the very thing that the enemy's gonna try to do is what I'm called to live. I'm to live in grace. See, the devil tried to disgrace her, but she took her pain to his presence. She didn't let sadness steal her sight, and she prayed, and she fasted day and night. Anna didn't let her circumstances change her purpose. And I want to submit to you this morning that in Luke chapter 2, if we don't have Anna, we don't have Mary. And before you call me a heretic, <laughs> I want to put a disclaimer out there that we, we don't deserve God's grace and, and God doesn't have to do anything on the earth. He doesn't need us to do it. He's God by himself. He doesn't need our help. And sometimes we have to remember that, that I'm not here helping God. God is helping me. I get to partner in what he's doing. But I want to show you this in, in Acts chapter 12. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, it'll be on the screen as well. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains, sleep between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands." You know that word there that she used, prayer, constant prayer was offered. That word offered, your Bible might say made, but it's the Greek word, genomai, and it means to come into existence. Something shifted. In that New Testament church, when they prayed, something shifted when Peter was in prison. A miracle came into existence because the church was praying. 
That word constant is the Greek word ektenes, and it means to stretch out. You see, we read in verse 1 where Herod had a stretch. He stretched out his hand against the church, but constant, the church had their own stretch that they made, and constant prayer broke the chains off Peter in prison. You know, scholars believe that Mary was between the ages of 12 and 16 when she was pregnant with Jesus. Imagine that. I have a seven-year-old, and I think I was 21 when I was pregnant for the first time. She was maybe between 12 and 16, which was normal for that time frame. And I imagine, I think back to my pregnancies with the girls, and, and I remember one uh, I remember Jawsons very specifically because it was Christmas time, and no one knew I was pregnant yet except Michael and close family. And I was constantly exhausted. You live in a constant state of exhaustion, which I think just prepares you for parenthood. But so if you're pregnant and you don't have kids, sorry to break that news to you, this will continue. Um, but I remember laying up at night, and I was so tired, I would look forward to bedtime, and then I couldn't sleep. <laughs> all night, just like insomnia. And I remember it because it was Christmas time and our tree was up and I would just sit on the couch and stare at the tree, hoping I could go to sleep. And I'd never had problems going to sleep before that. So it was a new experience for me. And I imagine Mary, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about her pregnancy, but I imagine that maybe Mary was up during those first few months tossing and turning in Nazareth wishing, man, I just wish I could get some sleep because <laughs> I'm so tired. And what was Anna doing? Anna didn't depart from the temple and she was praying and she was fasting while Mary was tossing and turning. And I imagine maybe Mary's four months pregnant now and she's in her second trimester and she feels better. You get a little bit of rest back, but I imagine her belly started to grow and people started to notice, oh yeah, sure, Mary, you're, you're a virgin. You're not crazy at all. You know, I imagine the ridicule that she faced, especially in this day and age for being pregnant. And she's facing all this at 12 to 16 years old. And what is Anna doing? Anna's fasting and praying in the temple for what Mary is carrying. And I imagine as Mary gets to six months pregnant that she's beginning to feel the aches and the pains of her growing and stretching body and feeling the kicks, which are so exciting but also painful as children get strength in their womb. And she's experiencing this, but she doesn't know that Anna's in the temple fasting and praying for what she's carrying. And I imagine Mary gets to that nine months and we know that they had to take a trip. And Mary is once again facing rejection from the culture around her. There's no room in the inn, and they go from inn to inn to inn, and she's rejected. There's no space for her. And what is Anna doing? Anna is praying for a way for a redeemer of Jerusalem to come in. Anna did Galatians 6 and 2. She bore one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, God is birthing something 
in a generation that's on the earth of Mary and Joseph's is what we'll call them to be symbolic this morning. There's a generation of Mary and Joseph's and they're gonna be ridiculed and they're gonna be criticized because of their standard of holiness. They're gonna be ridiculed and they're gonna be teased and mocked for the standard of faith that is so anti-culture. And they need Simeon's and they need Anna's who are in the temple fasting and praying for them. There's not an, a Mary if there's not an Anna. And moms and dads, your, your toddlers, your teenagers, your kids, they don't need you to drag them to every social event. They don't need you to drag them to every single sporting event. They don't need you to make their life so comfortable and cushy on this planet. They need you praying and fasting for their legacy. And Pastor David or Matt, if you can come out and start praying. You know what Mary means this morning? Mary means their rebellion. Think of that. God chose Mary, which means their rebellion, to carry the Savior of the world. Why? Because Mary only meets Anna, which means grace. Mary, her rebellion, meets grace at the temple because of Jesus, because of salvation. Mary meets grace at salvation. You see, my rebellion against God, my rebellion against his word, we're all born into sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't deserve grace, but it finds grace at salvation. <laughs> Jesus took me to grace. <laughs> Jesus carried me to grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Second Corinthians 12 and nine, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think Mary understood grace, and I think she understood the cost of grace. And for our fifth and final kingdom dynamic this morning, I want, we have to understand that grace has a cost. In John chapter 19, Mary is at the foot of the cross, and her baby boy has been mocked, and he's been whipped and a crown of thorns has been shoved into his brow, and he's been nailed to a cross. And the Bible says in verse 26 that he looks over at his mother. It says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Mary now got to carry the mantle of grace that Anna carried for her. <laughs> Anna was praying and fasting in the temple for Mary, for Jesus. And now as Jesus, she sees the cost that he's paying for this grace that she didn't deserve. 
Jesus now passes the mantle on to Mary and says, this is your son. You get to pray and you get to fast for the next generation. You know, this, this is why I titled my message this morning, Amazing Grace. If you'll reverently stand on your feet this morning, amazing grace that I didn't deserve. This world tries to sell a cheap grace, but grace is, is nothing but cheap. It costs us nothing, but it's not cheap. Because we didn't have to pay the price, but the Savior of the world was beaten and mocked and battered so that we could walk in grace. You know, we have three weeks before this year ends, roughly three weeks, and, and this is a year to grow. This is a year to make a decision this morning that my mourning, my pain, my grief, I'm going to leave it in the temple and I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna fast and I'm gonna find my anticipation again. I'm gonna have hope and expectancy again because there's a generation that whether you have kids or not, it doesn't tell us that Anna had kids, but she had a spiritual daughter. I believe she had Mary. She was praying and she was fasting for Mary. And this morning, if you'll be honest and say this message was for me, I, I've got pain and, and it's time and I recognize it's time that I, I've had time to mourn and God is with us in those mourning. The word says he's near to us in those times, but I've got to get up. I've got to arise and I've got to wipe my eyes because I refuse to miss my promise, even if it comes in seed form. There's too much on the line. There's too much on the line for this generation for you to sit and you to mourn and call it quits. <laughs> this generation needs Annas and it needs Simeon's, who the Bible says was just and devout, and he was in the temple waiting for the redemption.